Romans chapter 7. It's been a joy studying through the book of Romans this year with you. Our annual theme of We Are Not Ashamed. I trust that your hearts have been encouraged through it. For those of you who are guests this morning, we attempt to make it our pattern and our services to study through one book of the Bible at a time. And, uh, and typically on a Sunday morning, we'll take a whole year, maybe a year and a half to go through one book of the Bible uh, as carefully as we can uh, so God's people can be spiritually strengthened in order to strengthen one another, in order that we might have... The um, uh, proper gospel light in our community as a people that are growing in Christ and in his word. Uh, so we are in Romans chapter 7. If you're here this morning and maybe you forgot your Bible in the car or at home, our ushers have one for you to follow along. If you just slip up your hand, they'll be glad to see your hand and get you a Bible to follow along this morning. All of these sermons are on recorded video on our website if you'd like to go back and catch up to where we are. We've been studying uh, the second major section, really third major section of the book of Romans on the topic of what does it mean to become gradually molded into the character of Christ? What does it, to mean, what does it mean to be gradually more and more godlike in our character? The Bible calls that, there's a big word, uh, for those of you who are newer in the Lord, it's called sanctification. Sanctification. We saw twice that word in chapter 6. And we discovered in chapter 6, this first chapter on this topic of sanctification or growing in Christ's likeness, becoming more like God. Uh, that it is the one doctrine that we need to know, the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, that's what we need to comprehend. And all of the blessings of that particular doctrine and how they apply to our lives. In verse 11, we saw the verb consider. And uh, we take that which is a matter of the mind first and apply it to our heart second. And then we studied in the rest of the chapter the word present or uh, representing or presenting ourselves. And, and we talked about our heart's desire to, in our will, apply what we know that's in our hearts to our daily living. And really sanctification is typically in that order. We need to understand doctrine, we need to consider in our hearts, and then we just need to make right choices. Right? If we cease to grow in Christ's likeness, it's probably because we've left ourselves dereft of doctrine, so we really don't know what to challenge our hearts with, and then we're left really with the inability uh, to make right choices. So in the Christian life, it's actually quite simple, although it does require a commitment for the whole of one's life to the knowing of Scripture, applying it to our hearts and then to our lives. Amen. So it's quite simple, but yet it takes a long time. And it's quite a long process. But God promises us, by his grace, uh, to grow us. Sinclair Ferguson, in his particular uh, sermon on this text in Romans chapter 7 uh, likens it to uh, climbing Mount Everest. We've used that analogy before in this pulpit. Uh, when you climb Mount Everest, you're certainly not going to do that in a day. Uh, it takes a long time to climb that mountain, and there's multiple base camps along the way. 
And the base camps are essential for lots of reasons, not just for rest, but you've got to get your bodies acclimated to the altitude, right? You've got to be able to be nourished in a particular way. You've got to stay hydrated in a certain way. And you've got to stay at that base camp for quite a while to recharge your bodies and then prepare your bodies for the next major climb. Um, so we're going to spend a little bit of time here in chapter 7 uh, as kind of a base camp. We're going to review, we're going to recoup, revive, and prepare ourselves uh, to move forward in a passage that's classically been um, um, not misunderstood, but uh, depending on if you read commentaries, books that have been written about the Bible, uh, for those of you who are newer believers, uh, you're going to find authors divided uh, about one major thing in this chapter, uh, and that major thing is primarily verses 14 to 25, and when Paul talks about that, which we'll discuss in a little bit, when he describes this part of his life, was he, doing, was he describing his life before he was saved or after he was saved? And uh, we'll discuss that uh, a little bit later. Um, but nonetheless, uh, as we continue, we know chapters 6 and 7 together are discussing this topic of sanctification, and uh, we must answer the questions given to us in these two chapters to protect us from extremes in our life. There's one extreme mentioned at the beginning of chapter 6, and uh, do you remember what that is in that second question? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And Paul's answer to that is what? Absolutely not. Uh, God forbid. What's he, what extreme is he protecting us from there? Uh, spiritual license. He's protecting us from the extreme of spiritual license. Now that I'm in Jesus Christ, I get to do what I want to do. I get to sin how much I ever want to sin because I'm protected in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, no, that's not quite how it works if you understand the baptism of the Spirit and what growth in Christ's likeness means. So it's protection against that extreme. When we get to chapter 7, the discussion uh, is about the law. In chapter 6, we've died to sin because we've been baptized in the Spirit when we're born again, and that protects us from the extreme of license, pragmatic license. When we get to chapter 7, when we're talking about sanctification, we will find out that we've also died to the law. We've died to the law, which protects us from the other extreme, which is legalism. So we've died to sin, which protects us from extremism, and we've also died to the law that protects us from legalism. Very important for us to understand as we head into this overview of chapter 7. What we'll also understand from chapter 7 is that spiritual growth is never achieved by merely adhering to religious standard. And please remember that. I'm going to give you the expository outline that we're going to discuss in weeks forward, but today's just going to be a general overview of chapter 7 and some opening applicational elements here. But we have to remember that chapter 7's about the law, the nature of the law, the purpose of the law, but we have to understand what the law can't do. 
and the law has no power to transform us, and the law has no power to grow us in Christ-likeness. We have to understand that it has a purpose. We'll discuss it, but we have to remember that spiritual growth, personally and collectively as a church, is never to be achieved by merely adhering to religious standard. You'll remember back when we were studying through the doctrine of justification in chapter 321 through chapter uh, 5, in the end of the chapter, uh, we, we mentioned often that in Christ we've been justified, so we've been freed from the penalty of sin. Amen? There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That's what Romans 8 tells us as well. We get to chapter number 6 and 7, what we find out through the baptism of the Spirit when we're born again, we've been free from the power of sin, the 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 mandate of sin in our lives, the dominion of sin in our lives. But we find out from chapter seven, well chapter six says we've been saved from the power, chapter seven teaches us that we're never released in this life from the presence of sin. The presence of sin. And the law is going to, uh, the Bible's gonna tell us, Paul's gonna tell us the purpose for the law in relationship to sin in chapter seven, but, uh, we're going to have to understand this reality when we head into chapter 7. While we're free from the power of sin, sin is still present in our lives, isn't it? And we're going to discuss how to grow in Christ's likeness, even though the presence of sin will be our reality until we see Jesus Christ face to face. There are really two major things that we need to learn about uh, sanctification in addition um, to what we've already discussed in both chapters six and seven. Uh, there is a right way to be grown in Christ-likeness in chapter six, and we discussed that, comprehending, considering, and then conforming, making right decisions in our daily life. And there's a wrong way to grow in Christ-likeness, that's chapter seven, mere adherence to external religious standard. Uh, chapter six teaches us that growth in Christ-likeness first, is first and foremost a spiritual endeavor that requires doctrinal knowledge to be understood by a tender heart, that that tender heart then is able to make choices based on the doctrine that leads one to being grown in righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Chapter seven teaches that growth is never achieved through religious adherence to the law or what we will call for our purposes mere religious standard or externalism. Why two chapters? Why two chapters given to this topic of growth in Christ likeness, first from a positive standpoint and then from a negative standpoint? Well, even though we are born again and have experienced new life in Christ, as we've stated already, there is still part of us that likes to explore wrong things. We are still living in the presence of sin. That's why we often sing that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave what? The God I love. We know that there's this element this law of sin, if you will, that still abides within us, tugging at our hearts away from the walk with the Lord. But 
we need to understand what the law can't do in relationship for that so that we're constantly focusing on what we can do in Christ Jesus to become conformed to the character of our creator. When these times come, where we feel that tug in our heart, that prone to wander, we need to often remind our hearts about the nature of sanctification and where it starts and how it's achieved by reviewing the truth of chapter six. I think it's necessary for us to often remember these things of chapter six in order to find out how to be sanctified, but also how to positively know growth to protect ourselves against what growth is not in chapter seven. Chapter six teaches we should run to who we are in Christ to find our way to spiritual growth. And chapter seven teaches us we should never run to the law to find holiness or a standard for holiness. One author said if we are not satisfied to get our holiness and sanctification just as we found our justification, trusting in Jesus, knowing that we died with Christ, reckoning it to be so, presenting ourselves to him. If we are not satisfied with that, then chapter seven is for you. In other words, if we're not going to find our growth in Christ's likeness exclusively through what we understood in chapter six, then you are probably trying to find your growth in Christ's likeness through some type of religious means external to yourself. And you really need to understand chapter seven because that's not how you find it. Some of us who have been studying our Bibles for a long time have come to know chapter seven to primarily be a debate as we stated earlier about verses 14 to 25, whether that describes Paul as a uh, saved or unsaved individual. We'll address that matter to be sure. But really Paul is writing to saved people in the church of Rome. Remember in the whole book, he does not level one criticism against these people who are growing in Christ likeness. So really chapter six and seven is really coming to them by way of reminder doctrinally and practically of how that growth has continued to be achieved and increased. And Paul is writing to save people in Rome and chapter seven is simply about making sure we don't attempt to achieve holiness by keeping the law or mere religious human standard. In other words, Roman people, you're doing a great job, you're doing fine. For those of you that have a historic Jewish background in the church of Rome, he's saying, listen, your tendency is going to be to pick up that law again from time to time, to achieve approval, status before God and man, and he's just, he's just saying, you know what, no, don't. You died to the law, we're gonna explain that, but you're doing fine, just, just keep going. Just keep going. In further overview of chapter seven, we also need to know that verses 14 to 25, understood within its context, does not explain the normal and persistent struggle of the Christian life. 
our tendency is, for those of you that know your Bibles for a long time, and I know that we've got folks that have been saved in here for days, weeks, months, and some for decades, and everything in between, that's a beauty of what God's done here at Grace Church, and I'm thankful for that. So I'll address the people, I hope that's always the case, but I, I want to address the people who have been in the Lord for a long time. You're very familiar with the context and the wording of the end of chapter 7, right? And, and so much so that many of us may believe that what Paul is describing there as to his own personal struggle with sin was a struggle that defined the whole of his life. And we have to understand that it was not a description of his struggle with sin that defined the whole of his life. This was not normal to his human existence. He's describing at times what happened. And we're going to find out two specific ways that I believe the context tells us that he struggled at times with his flesh in this way. So for those of you who are a little older in the Lord, but not as old as some that have been saved for decades, I, when you read this text that we're going to read this morning uh, together, I don't want you ever to believe that what Paul's describing about himself here uh, is indicative of the whole of his Christian life. The struggle with sin will always be there because we will always be in its presence, but it will never always be that intense. The context is going to determine the timing of the intensity of that struggle. And as I said earlier, we'll, we'll discuss this later. In order to prove that, let's remember too the context of chapter 6 and verse 14. All right. That intense struggle with sin in our Christian life that Paul describes in verses 14 to 25, we have to understand that in light of verse 14 of chapter 6, where Paul said, for sin shall not be what? Master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. He's not going to, in verses 14 to 25, describe a perpetual conflict in his own soul after he's just written to us the truth of chapter 6. And then, when you consider chapter 8, right, chapter 7 kind of sandwiched in between chapter 6 and chapter 8, let's read together the first few verses of chapter 8. He's saying here, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And even in a... Not, not to mention, just to highlight chapter 6, and particularly verse 14 in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, but in a greater context of the book, again, remember that Paul is not writing to this congregation as a congregation that is also perpetually dealing with an intense struggle over sin. He's not leveling any criticism against them. Rome is no Corinth. <laughs> For those of you who are older in the Lord again, Rome is no Corinth. Rome's growing. Rome's a strong church. Rome is posturing itself to be the home plate, if you will, for church planting into the westernized world of that time. Right? Uh, Rome's strong. 
Rome's strong. Um, so again, just in light of when we get into the wording that we'll read in a moment here of Paul's struggle uh, at the end of this chapter, it is not descriptive of the experience of his life. But at times, we'll find out why we as Christians, and hang on with me here, we'll, we'll, we'll learn two things. That times the intensity of that struggle with sin is self-inflicted. We'll learn from the context. And we'll find out that sometimes it's brought on by just a, uh, a genuine um, understanding of God's word and how it touches our hearts from time to time. But we'll discuss that later. One author said, no Christian need ever enter into the experience that is recorded here in the seventh chapter, particularly in the verses 14 to 25, if he only receives with the heart what the sixth chapter has to teach them. But if we cannot know what God has done for us in Christ, if we fail to reckon it to be true, if we fail to present ourselves to God, then there is nothing left for us but the dreary, depressing, desperate experience which we find at the end of the seventh chapter. In other words, if you're going to be a Christian who at times lives by the law, lives by mere Christian standard or conviction, you're gonna be a miserable person. When you define your own walk with God and your own maturity by mere religious rule and standard, you're gonna be a discouraged person. And then when you try to apply that religious externalism to another person's life to determine if they're really growing in Christ like us, you're gonna make their lives miserable. So how we grow is chapter six, how we don't grow is chapter seven. And what we're gonna find out here, I believe within the context that Paul at times in his life was tempted to, deter, to evaluate his own growth and other Christians' growth merely by the law. And that's going to incite a real sin struggle in his life. And sometimes he was gonna be tempted to evaluate other people's growth by merely the law and that also incited struggle in them but we'll look at both the positive and negative aspects of this as well as we, as we continue. So there remains no need to emphasize the latter part of chapter seven any more than the context demands. And we will settle down into the critical aspects of the passage as we continue to study Romans seven together in future weeks. So before we move any further, let's consider some, <coughs> some details about chapters six and seven that you may have picked up on yourself when reading through these chapters. Again, we'll highlight chapter six and verse 14 that teaches us sin will not ma be master over us for we're not under the law but we're under grace. So chapter six is all about being under grace and chapter seven is all about not being under the law. Now write down these notes if you want, go back and highlight these things in your Bibles if you desire, but all these matters are, all these details are about immediate context, help understand where we're headed here about the nature, purpose of the law in our, in our lives as believers. In chapter number six, on your own time, if you haven't found it already, I want you to see the word mentioned, the word sin there mentioned some 17 times. 
In chapter number seven, you'll find the word law mentioned some 18 times. In chapter number six, we've become dead to sin. And in chapter number seven, we're not grown by the law. So again, to avoid extremes, we have to understand what we've become dead to and how we're grown and, and how we're not grown. If you want to cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible by chapter number 7, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, Paul says the strength of sin is the law. When we understand the nature and the purpose for the law, we'll understand that it has no power to transform us or grow us. It's only power by the hand of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is to condemn us and to convict us of sin. It's not a tool of spiritual growth. It's an agent of conviction that leads us to Christ. So for those of you that have been older in the Lord for a long time, don't ever forget that. It's never a post-conversion agent of conviction. Okay? But by its nature, we'll discuss that later. It is certainly useful by the believer. Right. Another analogy here of the two chapters. The first six verses of chapter six teach us that we have become dead to sin. We know that. And the first six verses of chapter seven by way of marriage analogy, teach us that since we are in Christ, we are now also dead to the law. Post-conversion, we're dead to the law. As we continue, one of the most outstanding aspects of chapter seven is the use of the personal pronoun, I. The personal pronoun, I, occurs some 30 times from verse seven to the end of the chapter. 30 times. The personal pronoun me occurs 12 times. The pronoun my occurs four times and myself one time. So 47 times a personal pronoun occurs in just 19 verses. discussing Paul's own way by personal testimony, his struggle with sin. And his struggle in understanding the, the nature and the purpose of the law in his own life. And I, I would just say wait, by way of practical application real quickly, whenever you're discipling someone here at Grace and, you're, and um, um, you always hear personal pronouns as they're talking to you, Personal use of personal pronouns is not wrong. But in some, in some circumstances, sometimes the use of that personal pronoun in relationship to someone's personal struggle with sin can be indicative of what they're not understanding in chapter six. I'm struggling with this. My life is consumed with this. I myself, I can't get victory over this. I am always perpetually, daily, in depression because of this. I, 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 within the context, is in relationship to someone's relationship with sin. So they may be sitting before you in great need of the doctoral understanding of chapter six and how that affects the heart and their decision making. 
And until they understand that, the only law that they have to live by is maybe the Mosaic law, but also the law of their conscience and the law of sin in their life. And the law can't transform and the law can't grow a soul. So when we, get, again, struggle personally, when I struggle with my own sin as your pastor, and I find myself perpetually struggling with sin, uh, oftentimes in my life, I have left myself direct of an increasing understanding of Bible doctrine. I've been outside the consistent reading of God's word and outside the consistent use of prayer and devotion. And then what am I left to do? I'm left to govern my own life and discern the growth of others merely through conviction and standards external to ourselves. And then we find out in a little bit that the purpose of the law is actually to arouse more sin in our life. So that's messed up. Sin's always really active in our lives and then when we study the Bible about the law, we find out the purpose of the law is just to excite more sin in our lives to point us to Christ. We are in a confused people. We can be. We can be. I'm not saying that's descriptive of our lives in general because I don't think this battle's descriptive of Paul's life in general. We've already... Uh, supported that, but I believe Paul is discussing here by way of personal testimony that there were times in his life where he was tempted to live by the law even as a believer. Go with me to Philippians chapter three real quickly. Hold your finger here and let's remember the kind of guy Paul was before his conversion by way of his own testimony. A familiar passage to many of you I know I think it's a great study. If you ever want to do a devotional study on just the time Paul utilized his personal testimony, where, how, why, and before who, it's a great study. Uh, it teaches us a lot of things. He's given it to the Philippian believers here. Finally, brother, rejoice in the Lord, verse, chapter three, verse one. Um, to write the same things again is no trouble for me. It's a safeguard for you. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Interesting here what he calls people who live life and evaluate spiritual progress by external means. Right? And, and we'll find out that he was referring to himself as this before his conversion. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision. That's just a synonym for people who are born again in Christ who worship the spirit of God and glory in Christ, Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Also, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in flesh, I what? I far more. So is Paul describing here a potential tendency, a personal tendency to put a lot of confidence in his old life? Sure he is. And what was his old life? Verse five circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever these, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have considered, counted, reckoned as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss 
in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ. Now, go back to Romans chapter 7. I'm just reading that. I would encourage you again to read other other, other, uh, uses of Paul's testimony in their context. But for our purposes this morning, we can certainly see Understanding the use of the word law 18 times in chapter number seven, and as we get down to the breakdown um, of the text within its structure, uh, I really believe we're going to be able to support that sometimes our own personal intense, not perpetual, but periodic struggle with sin is self-inflicted. We're not reminding ourselves devotionally about doctrine and practice. We're leaving ourselves to just governing ourselves and others by a mere human religious standard. Right? Now, you say, well, Pastor Tim, you've said the same thing about seven different ways. Well, that was my goal. <laughs> okay? I'm really trying to encourage your hearts how to grow by understanding chapter six and how not to grow by understanding chapter seven. All right? So we're going to use all this information that we've discussed here, all these details, all this data in the text to later prove that Paul's personal struggle with sin within the context is what we've already stated. He was tempted to utilize the law, even though he was saved, to achieve personal spiritual growth. But we'll find out within the immediate, immediate context of the latter part of chapter 7 that there were at times the law of God resonated with his heart. And he delighted in the scriptures. And there were times where his own innate sinfulness was uh, demonstrated or shown by the mere reading of the scriptures. And that's more of a devotional humility, if you will, because when we read the Bible at times, we can have our own sinfulness. And, And you might be having a good spiritual hair week, but on any particular morning you sit down and you read the Bible and the Spirit of God ministers to your heart so deeply and he exposes again, you know, your own darkness. And you say, well, I've been having a good week, but then there's that time where God's word ministered to your heart so effectually, you're reminded of who you really are without Christ and it's a scary thing, and then you're reminded who you are in Christ, and it becomes a joyful thing. So I think what Paul's describing here in his periodic struggle with sin was also self-inflicted, but was also experienced in a time of intense spiritual devotion. But this struggle with sin, the intensity of the struggle, did not define his life day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, or year-to-year. So when we see the nature, purpose, and ministry of the law in our own lives, the next time we're together, we will see what I believe the text is saying about Paul's personal struggle with sin. In other words, even a a mature believer who dabbles in discerning their own spiritual growth or the spiritual growth of another, merely by way of religious means or standards, will do so and incite the activity of sin in their own lives while simultaneously doing the same in the life who they're trying to minister to. Again, within the context, I find both a positive and negative aspect in relationship to Paul's periodic struggles with sin. Okay? 
So the next time we're together in chapter number seven, we're going to investigate the following outline. Would you write this down? Uh, the following outline. In verses one to six, we're going to discuss the position of the law in our lives. The position of the law in our lives. And really that it has no authority. That's its position, no authority. We'll describe that. In verses seven to 13, we're going to discuss the purpose of the law in our lives, what some people call the ministry of the law, but for sake of alliteration, we'll talk about the position, the purpose of the law, verses seven to 13. And third, we'll discuss some precautions about the law in our lives, some precautions. So the position, the purpose, and precaution. Remember, the law of God is the inspired word of God. Paul's going to ask the question. I believe it's found in, in verse number seven. Would you look at that with me? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he responds to that question similarly that he did at the beginning of verse, uh, chapter six, in the middle of chapter six, may it never be on the contrary. <laughs> I would have not come to know sin except through the law. So the law is not sin. It is God's word but the law is rendered powerless to transform you, to convert you, and it's rendered powerless to grow you in sanctification. Right? But it has its purpose, uh, to be sure. Right? So, the position, purpose, and precaution. Uh, as we close up here this morning, can I give you, so you're not confused the next time we're together, can I give you several uses of the word law in this context to clarify some things? And then I'm going to give you one other, some other details of this text. And I want you to keep, when you have time, keep reviewing chapter 7 on your own between Sundays. Uh, start putting all these details together with you and the Lord on your own. Right. We find out from verse 23. Look with me at verse 23. So every time the word law is used in this context, it's not referring to the Mosaic law alone. Predominantly it is, I believe, or the law of Moses. Predominantly, but not exclusively. If you look at verse number 23, Paul says, but I see a different law in my members of my body, warring against the law of my mind. And then you'll see at the end of the last three words of verse 25, the law of sin of my members and the law of my mind is synonymous with what I believe the Bible's teaching here is, is the law of sin. And remember back a few chapters where sin reigns in our lives pre-conversion. Now in Christ, righteousness reigns. There are various reigns, various kings in our lives. What Paul is saying here, three different ways, that there's something about our nature. There's a law that reigns in my mind. It's the law of sin. Right? If you go down to verse 25 again, you'll see a phrase there, not law of sin, but he says here, in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind right, am serving the law of God. Right? 
there's something going on in his mind here in reference to another law. The word, the law of God here, I believe in this specific phrase is not in reference to the Mosaic law, but in reference to the word of God as a whole. Sometimes uh, the Bible is described as the law of God, even in Psalm 19 in verse seven, right? The law of the Lord is perfect and it what? Converts the soul. Remember James 1.25? If we look into the perfect law of liberty, that's a synonym for the Bible. The law of God in that particular phrase in verse 25 is synonymous for the scriptures. So I just wanna be very particular and very helpful, hopefully, in relationship here. But regardless of all of these laws, including the Mosaic law, none of them are powerful to convert and none of them are powerful or empowered to transform. Because we've already been transformed in Christ. Baptism of the Spirit, chapter six. And remember, chapter seven is how not to grow. And finally, this morning, let's look at a couple aspects of the nature of this law. The context tells us that this law is holy. Look with me, if you will, at verse 12. So then, the law is, as to the nature of this law, the law is holy. Now, I believe that's in specific reference to Mosaism. for the remnant of converted Jews that were in the audience of Rome at that time. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and what? And righteous, and it's good, if you go down to verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. So again, verse seven, is the law sin? Heavens, no. (laughs) Is the law God's word? Heavens, yes. It is good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's spiritual, but it's powerless to help us be converted and it's powerless to help us discern whether we or someone else is growing in Christ-likeness or not. Now, um, we need to close in prayer, but I want this to be a source of encouragement to you even though chapter seven is really a negative approach to spiritual growth. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Spiritual growth sounds really positive, but it has to be approached from a negative perspective because the positive's already been approached, right? But I just want this to be an encouragement and yet a warning to all of us who have been in Christ for a long time, especially those who have been in Christ for decades, and I'm gonna narrow this final application to even a smaller group among us, even though there's many in this group who were not reared in this particular way. If you're a second or third generation believer and you were grown up in institutionalized Christianity, in other words, a lot of your doctrine came from the contexts of Christian institutions extant to your home. It will be from time to time our, that's me, our tendency to evaluate our own spiritual progress and the progress of others by the rules that, we were laid, that were laid upon us to obey while we were growing up in those institutional frameworks. So in other words, if you grew up in a Christian institution like I did 
for the first 25 years of, well, that's not true because I didn't go to school till four years old. So almost for two and a half decades of my life, three decades of my life, when you go into that environment and it's a school, it should have a rule book. All schools do, it's fine. But in a Christian school, it's not just rules, but they're rules that are underpinned by scriptural mandate and principle. So when you go in there, you're asked to read that manual, sign off that you're at it, and then sign again that you're willing to obey it perfectly. Well, everyone knows that's not gonna happen. Anyone that says I obeyed my Christian institution's rule book perfectly is a liar. You're a liar, don't even think you did. Right? But I think unwittingly sometimes, the evaluation of our spiritual growth was done according to the rule book rather than our position in Jesus Christ and the desire to develop that personal heart according to the scriptures as we find in Romans chapter 6. And the, the weird psychosis to this whole thing could be, not in every situation, but in some cases, that when a spiritual leader seeks to evaluate somebody else's life by mere religious standard or conviction, this text is going to tell us that what they're really doing is, is exciting wickedness in their own heart as they seek to evaluate somebody else's failure by the rule book, they're going to incite wickedness in that person's heart. And then you've got two non-spirit controlled people trying to do the right thing the wrong way and that's whacked. That's messed up. That's why a lot of times for that small microcosm of you in the room, we're so thankful for what we received scripturally growing up, but when we were evaluated by the standards rather than our position in Jesus Christ and we were ministered to the heart, it became a system of, of rules over relationships which always equals rebellion. Now remember we're in two chapters that are talking about being conformed to the likeness of God. So we're not talking about jettisoning character and jettisoning holiness. It's just how do we get there? We get there by chapter six. We don't get there by use of the law in chapter seven. We just don't. But often we've tried to. And then we wonder why there's even more gasoline on the fire and trying to resolve the problem. Does that make sense? All right, for about 80% of you, just disregard what I said for the last three and a half minutes. It may not make sense. I'm just trying to encourage everyone here this morning. So the weeks forward, we're gonna really enjoy Romans chapter seven, hopefully within its immediate context, its chapter context, its book context, and within the context of all of Christendom uh, as we move forward. Okay, let's pray together.